Well, as Pastor Enro already alluded to, so myself along with Pastor Jason, we all will be um, continuing in the teaching from the Gospel of John. So obviously, as you're accustomed to generally, it would typically be one of us to where we would go through a particular book or a particular epistle. And we decided, given um, the fact that there are three of us, and rather than all three of us, you know, take on a particular topic, we stick to, you know, the Gospel of John and really teach through that so that, you know, there isn't many weeks, but, you know, between each, each passage. And hopefully in doing that, you know, we all can really see the, you know, the essence and the theme um, and, and gain a greater understanding for uh, this Gospel. So with that being said, I will be looking at the final section of the prologue, the first part of the Gospel of John, and I'll be focusing in on, on verses 15 through 18. But before we begin, let's first start with a word of prayer. Our most gracious and heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you so much for allowing us to, to be here and now um, um, putting us in this place to where we get to read from your most holy word and, and learn, oh God, from it. Lord, I pray that you may grant us all understanding as it pertains to the truths contained um, within uh, the prologue to the Gospel of John. Help me, Lord, as I stand behind your pulpit, Lord, um, to teach accurately and clearly, oh Lord, um, and I pray, Lord, that all those who are hearing, both primarily within in, in this building here, but then anyone that might be hearing or remotely as well, that you may grant them an understanding of this passage, O oh Lord. So God, please be with us. Um, and uh, may this time together, diving into your word, be um, a time that is most edifying for us all. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. So just so that we can get the entire entire context for the Gospel of John. Let's read from the, the entire prologue itself, which would be the first 18 verses of John chapter 1. So again, we're going to be focusing in on verses 15 through 18, but I think just by way of just to not miss the, the, the entirety of what's being spoken of in the prologue, let's read the first 18 verses together. So again, this is John chapter 1, verses 1 through 18. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things came into being through him, and apart from him nothing came into being that has come into being. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not comprehend it. There came a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to testify about the light, so that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but he came to testify about the light. There was the true light, which coming into the world enlightens every man. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, and the world did not know him. He came to his own, and those who were his own did not receive him. But as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God, even to those who believe in his name, who were born not of, the, not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we saw his glory, 
glory as of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. John testified about him and cried out, saying, This is this was he of whom I said, He who comes after me has a higher rank than I, for he existed before me. For of his fullness we have all received, and grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth were realized through Jesus Christ. No one has seen God at any time. The only begotten God who is in the bosom of the Father, he has explained him. So, in verses 15 through 18, in this section, what we see is John finishing his prologue by explaining the superiority of Christ above all the previous prophets and the blessing that we receive in Jesus Christ. You know, when he starts the prologue, as we just read, John identifies who this Savior is, who our Savior is. He was the Word. Not only was he the Word, he was God. Because he was God, he was our light, and in him we have life. In verse 14, John explains to us that God became a man and dwelt among us. Now, Pastor Enro, in his previous sermons, took time to explain the doctrine of the hypostatic union, or that doctrine that teaches that Jesus was both fully God and fully man. So I won't belabor the point here. I would just encourage you to take a listen to those sermons. But one note that I will make is what John says at the end of verse 14, where he says, that the word was full of grace and truth. It is that fullness of grace and truth that we will be seeing throughout the remaining of the prologue. In particular, in verses 16 through 18, Jesus Christ is he who was full of grace and truth. Not only is he full of grace and truth, but he has bounteously lavished us with his grace and truth. In Christ, we receive the blessings of salvation. And in Christ, we truly understand the Father. John brings all of that to light in this section that we're going to be reviewing today. So let's start first by looking at verse 15, where the apostle John writes, John, that is John the Baptist, testified about him and cried out saying, this was he of whom I said, he who comes after me, has a higher rank than I, for he existed before me. Although John the Baptist came before Jesus from the standpoint of his physical birth, his importance is incomparable to that of Christ. Undoubtedly, because Israel at that time was in the midst of a prophetical drought, when John the Baptist comes to the scene and starts to speak with the same authority of the Old Testament prophets, that was sure to cause quite a stir. I am sure that there were some Jews who assumed that John the Baptist was, in fact, the Messiah. We see, matter of fact, in verses 19 through 23, a discourse that John had with some of the priests. Matter of fact, let's take a look at it together, since it immediately follows the passage that we're going to be looking at, in starting in verse 19. This is the testimony of John. When the Jews sent to him priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, who are you? And he confessed and did not deny, but confessed, I am not the Christ. Well, they asked him, what then? Are you Elijah? And he said, I am not. Are you the prophet? And he answered, no. Then they said to him, who are you? So that we may give an answer to those who sent us. What do you say about yourself? 
He said, I am a voice of one crying in the wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord, as Isaiah the prophet said. So one of the first things that John the Baptist makes clear was that he was not the Messiah. The Apostle John, the author of this gospel, takes great pains in the prologue to make clear that John the Baptist was not the promised Messiah. We saw that in verses 6 through 8 of the prologue. So when John, the Apostle John, speaks in verse 15, or excuse me, John the Baptist speaks in verse 15, he makes clear that although he himself was physically born before the Messiah, he is merely the appetizer preparing everyone for the main course meal, so to speak. Jesus Christ is the main course. When Jesus Christ finally comes to the scene, John tells everyone, here is the person that I was making way for. Now, when you read this text, Depending on the translation that you have, it can be pretty confusing to understand. Matter of fact, let's take a look at some of the um, translations so you can see what I'm talking about. Now, I'm reading from the New American Standard, and then we see it said, This was he of whom I said, he who comes after me has a higher rank than I, for he existed before me. But then you know, we see, and for example, in the King James, he that cometh after me is preferred before me, for he was before me. And then the young literal translation, you know, says, he who after me is coming hath come before me, for he was before me. So then the question we need to ask ourselves is, okay, what exactly is it that John the Baptist is getting at? And in order to understand what he is saying, you're going to have to look at the Greek. And when you do that, the meaning of this text, of this section here, does become clearer. Because when John says, he who comes after me comes before me, that phrase, come before me, if you study it, is best rendered, actually, as the New American Standard indicates. And he has a higher rank than me. And that last clause, for he was before me, is best rendered that he existed before me. So taking it all together, what John is saying here is, yes, you may have dealt with me first and have seen my works first, but Jesus Christ is far more significant than me. I am a prophet of God. Yeah, but he is the son of God. Jesus Christ is who all the prophets of the Old Testament were pointing to. While the works of the prophets were important for the unfolding plan of redemption, they did not actually provide redemption. Redemption only comes through the work of Jesus Christ. Once Jesus comes to fulfill his role in accomplishing redemption, the prophetic ministry, like that of John the Baptist, can take a back seat now. The focus can be turned away from the prophets and placed towards the Son. John himself understood this. When you read John chapter 3, verses 25 through 30, listen to what John says. So therefore, there arose a discussion on the part of John's disciples with a Jew about purification. And they came to John and said to him, Rabbi, he who was with you beyond the Jordan, to whom you testified, behold, he is baptizing and all are coming to him. John answered and said, a man can receive nothing unless it has been given 
him from heaven. You yourselves are my witnesses that I said, I am not the Christ, but I have been sent ahead of him. He who has the bride is the bridegroom, but the friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly because of the bridegroom's voice. So this joy of mine has been made full. He must increase, but I must decrease. So he sees and understands the fact of what his role is. And now that Christ has come, so Christ must be lifted up, not him. And one point that I will mention in regards to the mentality that we see here from John the Baptist, this humble mentality is a far cry from what we see today. So often, once someone reaches an office of prominence, it's hard to get them to let go of that. We love the notoriety. We love the attention. Mind you, John the Baptist was a, was a prophet. And in those days, there was a famine, so to speak, as it pertains to a prophetic word. John the Baptist, however, knew his role. He was not the guy. He was merely pointing to the guy. If he were to exalt himself, he would be deflecting attention off of Christ, which was not his purpose. You know, another interesting implication when you look at this passage here in verse 15 is that if we understand what John is saying here, this verse really helps to support the understanding of the hypostatic union as we see in John 1 verse 14. Because we know that Jesus from his human standpoint, was born physically after John. Yet John the Baptist tells the Jews that Jesus existed before him. See, this can only make sense when you understand that who existed before John the Baptist was the pre-incarnate Christ, who was the second person of the Trinity. Matthew Henry, commenting on this passage, he, he puts it in this way. He says, Christ as man came after John as to his public appearance. Christ, as God, was before him. And how could he otherwise be before him but by eternal existence? So we see in this passage, you know, a support to the understanding of the hypostatic union. And after we see John the Baptist saying this, we read now in verse 16, for of his fullness, that is Christ, of Christ's fullness, we have all received and grace upon grace. Now, being that, you know, verse 15 is sort of a kind of a parenthesis, a parenthetical point to really the, you know, the, you know, verses 14 through 18. If you really want to understand verse 16, you're going to have to go back to verse 14. Where, again, the Apostle John writes, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we saw his glory, glory as of the only begotten son from the father, full of grace and truth. Jesus, the eternal word made flesh is full of grace and truth. Because he is God incarnate, he is truth. I mean, Paul reminds us of this in Colossians 2, verse 3, where he says that in Christ are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Jesus himself says in John 14, verse 6, that I am the way and the truth 
and the life. Because Christ lived the sinless life and died for our sins, through him we are graciously granted salvation. Again, the Apostle Paul in Ephesians 1, verses 7 through 8, tells us in him, Christ, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished on us. So the Apostle John in this passage here is right in declaring that of his fullness, Christ's fullness, we have all received grace and truth. And we all received, in particular, grace upon grace. Now, once you grasp the fullness that those in Christ receive, then what John states towards the end of verse 16 becomes clear, grace upon grace. When he says that phrase, grace upon grace, he's talking about the abundance of grace that those in Christ receive. And then after the apostle John talks about the abundance of grace, this grace upon grace that we have received from Christ. We see in verse 17, him pointing back to Moses. And he says this, he says, for the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth were realized through Jesus Christ. He tells the reader that the law was given through Moses, but grace and truth were realized through Christ. And if you really want to understand this passage here, then there's going to be two words I'm going to ask you to really kind of hone in on. The word given and the word realized. John again says that the law was given through Moses. Now, if you know your Old Testament history, then you know that when Moses went to Mount Sinai, God gives him the law. The entire law, the moral, the civil, and ceremonial law. And these were laws that, of course, the Israelites were required to obey. They were not suggestions. They were requirements. And if the Israelites perfectly kept the law, in particular, the moral law, they would be declared righteous if they perfectly kept the law. However, if they broke the law, they would be condemned as sinners. As we read in Deuteronomy 27, verse 26, Cursed is he who, do, who does not confirm the words of this law by doing them. And all the people shall say, Amen. Now, when you look throughout the Old Testament, what you see is a veneration of the law. Numerous passages in the Old Testament affirm the goodness and truthfulness of the law. One such passage we can find in Psalm chapter 19, verses 7 through 9. Where the psalmist writes, the law of the Lord is perfect, restoring the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The judgments of the Lord are true. They are righteous altogether. We also see passages that talk about how blessed the person is who follows the law. Psalm 119, verses 1 through 2. How blessed are those whose ways is blameless, who walk in the law of the Lord. How blessed are those who observe his testimonies, who seek him with all their heart. 
We even see salvation being denied to those who refuse to keep the law. Psalm 119, verses 155. Salvation is far from the wicked, for they do not seek your statutes. Even looking into the New Testament, the Apostle Paul affirms the goodness of the law. He says in Romans 7, verse 12, So then the law is holy, and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. So the law was not something that was bad or wrong to follow. However, however, because of our sinfulness and the requirement to perfectly keep the entirety of the law, we could never be justified. We could never be declared righteous through keeping the law. Our sinful nature renders it impossible to do that very thing. That is why Solomon writes in Ecclesiastes chapter 7, verse 20, that there is not a righteous man on earth who continually does good and never sins. That is why the apostle James in James chapter 2, verse 10 says, Forever keeps the whole law and yet stumbles at one point is guilty of breaking them all. And that is why the Apostle Paul says in Romans 3, verse 23, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. See, given the fact that it was impossible to perfectly keep the law, God, we see in the Old Testament, the Old Covenant, gave to the Israelites ceremonial laws, in particular, the various sacrificial ordinances. Now, the purpose for those sacrifices was not to justify them in and of themselves, but rather to teach them that because of their sin, a sacrifice is required for atonement. They were being trained to look to a savior for their redemption. Matter of fact, this is what Paul tells us in Galatians 3 verse 24. Therefore, the law has become our tutor to lead us to Christ so that we may be justified by faith. Our own confession of faith says in chapter 19, the chapter dealing with the law of God in section 3 this, beside this law commonly called moral, God was pleased to give to the people of Israel as a church under age ceremonial laws containing several Typical ordinances, partly of worship, prefiguring Christ, his graces, actions, sufferings, and benefits, and partly holding forth diverse instructions of moral duties, all which ceremonial laws are now abrogated under the New Testament. Now, while the law was given through Moses, salvation was not obtained, was not realized through the law. For us, as I've already indicated, the law only served to condemn us and to curse us. What the Jews hoped to obtain through the law was actually realized through Christ. Galatians 3 verse 13, Paul says, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us. And then again, Matthew Henry Commenting on this passage, he writes this. He says that that which was given by Moses was purely terrifying and threatening and bound with penalties. A law which could not give life, which was given with abundance of terror. But that which is given by Jesus Christ is of another nature. It has all the beneficial uses of the law, but not the terror. For it is grace, grace teaching, 
and grace reigning. So the Apostle John in verse 17 of chapter 1 makes the point that grace and truth were realized not through the law given by Moses, but through Jesus Christ. And see, that grace and truth was something that many of the Jews thought that they would receive through the law given to them by Moses. They did not realize that the law, um, they did not realize that the law was not where they were to experience grace and truth, but rather it was to point them to that true source of grace and truth. Romans chapter 9, verses 30 to 33. Again, the apostle Paul, he says, what shall we say then? That Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness attained righteousness, even the righteousness which is by faith. But Israel, pursuing a law of righteousness, did not arrive at that law. Why? Because they did not pursue it by faith, but as though it were by works. They stumbled over the stumbling stone. Just as it is written, behold, I lay in Zion a st stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. And he who believes in him will not be disappointed. Then Paul goes on in Romans chapter 10, verses 3 through 4, for not knowing about God's righteousness and seeking to establish their own, they did not subject themselves to the righteousness of God. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. Did you hear that point? Christ is the end of the law for righteousness. To everyone who believes you cannot obtain righteousness. You cannot be declared righteous through the law. It is faith in Christ. It is believing in him. And those who believe in Christ are no longer under the penalty of disobedience to the law. Now, unfortunately, many of the immediate hearers, the immediate people that Jesus came before did not understand that. As the apostle tells us in verse 11, Jesus came to his own and those who were his own did not receive him. Again, they stumbled over the stumbling stone. Now, something that's very important to, to, to make here, you know, in, in, in making the point that the Apostle John does, he is not implying that the whole law, in particular, of course, the moral law, is done away with as though we're not obligated to uphold it. Now, obviously, of course, there are many aspects of the law that are abrogated. The ceremonial law, for example, and the civil law expiring with the nation of Israel outside of the moral principles. But the moral law continues on. Many times, you know, when we see, as Christians, when we see a distinction between law and grace in the Bible, we assume that they are somehow diametrically opposed to one another. That if you embrace Christ by faith, then you are completely free from the law, but if you seek to uphold the law, then you must not truly trust Christ. And it is so important 
to not misunderstand or misconstrue what is being stated and indicated here. So as to not make the mistake that so many people make in which they believe, okay, well, the Bible says that Christ, faith in Christ um, results in is the end of the law for righteousness. So therefore, why am I obligated to have to keep these commandments? No, 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 not at all. While we don't want to fall into the camp of the Judaizers and assume that there must be something that we must do to merit salvation outside of faith in Christ, we also don't want to fall into the camp of the, the free grace advocates and assume that faith in Christ means that we have a license to sin and do as we please. You know, I, I, I know I've, given the, I've mentioned this story so many times, but it, it speaks to the error that we want to avoid here. You know, years ago, I think I was in middle school, me and my best friend, we went to the state fair with actually with, with his mom. And there was a booth there. I'm pretty positive. Um, there was kind of like a Methodist church in, in, in the community or whatnot. And then my best friend, mom, he goes into, goes into the booth and starts talking with one of the ladies there. And as they're talking, as they're communicating, so it gets into the point um, where they're talking about salvation. And after you, you know, you place your faith in Christ, basically the life that you are able to live. And pretty much the lady that she was speaking to um, made it clear that, yeah, you know, once, you know, you've accepted Jesus as your savior. So if you sin, it's OK. If you continue to live however you want to, it's OK. You know, effectively, she didn't put it in this way, but effectively, you have purchased your fire insurance. So you are good to go. And I'll never forget, because my best friend's mom, she she pressed her at that point. She was like, well, wait a minute. So you mean to tell me if, you know, I were to, you know, go to the club, drinking, smoking, doing all of this stuff or, or, or whatnot, just basically living in, in her, I guess, in, in her mind, a life of debauchery. And let's say I die just doing that, not repentant at all, but I did believe in Jesus. So like I'm free and clear. The lady said, yeah. And at that point, we left the booth and then we just, you know, you know, enjoyed the rest of the day at, at the fair because, you know, my best friend's mom figured, OK, this is just a crazy woman at that point. But the reality of the fact is so many people think in this way. Hey, I believe in God, so therefore I can do as I please. And that is not the case at all. So we don't want to misconstrue what Paul or what the Apostle John says here in regards to grace and truth being realized through Jesus Christ. And, you know, Paul in Romans chapter five, starting in verse 18 really, really drives this point home. So what I want to do is I want to read, starting in verse 18 of chapter 5, we're going to go all the way to chapter 6, verse 19, because you need to hear this in total, because this will help to see how we ought to think. It'll help to see the idea that, yes, we are justified in Christ, our salvation is secure, but that doesn't mean that, therefore, you can just live as you please. Listen to what Paul writes. Again, starting in verse 18 of Romans chapter 5. So then, 
as through one transgression there resulted con condemnation to all men, even so through one act of righteousness there resulted justification of life to all men. For as through the one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, even so through the obedience of the one the many will be made righteous. The law came in so that the transgression would increase, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. So that as sin reigned in death, even so grace would reign through righteousness to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. And then Paul raises a question that I'm sure many people, quite frankly, who want to continue in sinning, would ask, well, what shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin so that grace may increase? May it never be. How shall we who died to sin still live in it? Or do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus have been baptized into his death? Therefore, we have been buried with him through baptism into death, so that as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, so we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have become united with him in the likeness of his death, certainly we shall also be in the likeness of his resurrection. Knowing this, that our old self was crucified with him in order that our body of sin might be done away with, so that we would no longer be slaves to sin. For he who has died is freed from sin. Now, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we shall also live with him, knowing that Christ, having been raised from the dead, is never to die again. Death no longer is master over him. For the death that he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life that he lives, he lives to God. Even so, consider yourselves to be dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body so that you obey its lust. And do not go on presenting the members of your body to sin as instruments of unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those alive from the dead and your members as instruments of righteousness to God. For sin shall not be master over you, for you are not under law, but under grace. So, so many people want to quote that last little section there in verse 14. We're not under law, but under grace. But they miss the entire context of what Paul is indicating here. He's not saying that so as to excuse sin. He's saying, wait, no, you are in Christ now. And then Paul goes on in verse 15. He says, what then shall we sin? Because we are not under law, but under grace. You see, Paul anticipates you know, the, the argument that a person who wants to continue sinning is going to ask. And he says, may it never be. Do you not know that when you present yourselves to someone as slaves for obedience, you are slaves of the one whom you obey, either of sin resulting in death or of obedience resulting in righteousness? So he's saying, oh yeah, you know, if you keep on sinning, you're just proving the point that you're still a slave to sin. Christ is not your master. And he says, but thanks be to God that though you were slaves of sin, you became obedient from the heart to that form of teaching to which you were committed. And having been freed from sin, you became slaves of righteousness. I'm speaking in human terms because of the weakness of your flesh. For just as you presented your members as slaves to impurity and to lawlessness, resulting in further lawlessness, so now present your members as slaves to righteousness, resulting in sanctification. 
See, God does not justify a person without also sanctifying a person as well. So then if a person is in Christ, they will not be continuing on living a life of sin. Doesn't mean that you will not from time to time struggle with sin, fall into sin, fall into temptation. But see, your aim in life is not going to be to continue to live the life that put Jesus on the cross to begin with. See, now that we are in Christ and we have received that blessed gift of justification, we are to live our lives as redeemed Christians. As Paul reminds us in Galatians chapter 2, we have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer we who live, but Christ lives in us. And the life that we now live, we live by faith in the Son of God who died for us. And then Paul in 2 Corinthians 5, anyone who is in Christ is a new creation. So with all that being said, while in Christ we received what could not be obtained through the law, we do not discard the law, in particular the moral law, but rather as new creatures, we seek to honor God by submitting ourselves to the moral law. Our confession in chapter 19, section 6, writes this, the divine state, Although true believers be not under the law as a covenant of works to be thereby justified or condemned, yet it is of great use to them as well as to others in that as a rule of life, informing them of the will of God and their duty, it directs and binds them to walk accordingly, discovering also the sinful pollutions of their nature, hearts, and lives. So as examining themselves thereby, they may come to further conviction of humiliation for and hatred against sin, together with a clearer sight of the need they have of Christ and the perfection of his obedience. It is likewise of use to the regenerate to restrain their corruptions. Remember, Paul writes in 1 Thessalonians 5 that the will of God for us is our sanctification. So it restrains their corruptions in that it forbids sin. And the threatenings of it serve to show what even their sins deserve and what afflictions in this life they may expect for them. Although freed from the curse thereof threatened in the law. The promises of it in like manner show them God's approbation of obedience and what blessings they may expect upon the performance thereof. Although not as due to them by the law as a covenant of works. So as a man's doing good and refraining from evil because the law encourages to the one and deterreth from the other is no evidence of his being under the law and not under grace. End quote. So, even though we realize grace and truth, through Jesus Christ. Our redemption obviously is in him. We do want to make clear that that is not, that does not infer or imply a complete discarding of the law. And then the apostle John, going back now to John 1 verse, um, in the prologue, in verse 18, he writes this, he says, no one has seen God at any time. Well, this is indeed true. We read in Exodus chapter 33, verse 20, when Moses wanted to behold the face of God, God says, you cannot see my face, 
for no man can see me and live. And then when the prophet Isaiah has the vision and sees the throne of God, we read this. We read in Isaiah chapter 6, verses 1 through 2, In the year of King Uzziah's death, I saw the Lord sitting on a throne, lofty and exalted, with the train of his robe filling the temple. Seraphim stood above him, each having six wings. With two, he covered his face. See, our God is a holy God. Because our God is a holy God and we are sinful, we cannot behold the glory of the invisible God and live. So no one has seen God at any time. But then John goes on to say, the only begotten God, it's interesting here that he says, now in my translation in New American Standard, it says the only begotten God, talking about Jesus Christ, who is in the bosom of the Father, he has explained him. Colossians 1 verse 15 says, Jesus, he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. Only through Jesus Christ, the only begotten Son, the only begotten God, can we look upon God and not be immediately destroyed. In the Reformation Study Bible, they note this. They write, it is the It is fundamental that God is invisible and without form. Moreover, if God were to manifest his glory in a form that we could see, his divine purity would destroy sinful humans. Yet Christ reveals God. He brings the invisible and visible together in a way that has no parallel or analogy. And in Calvin, John Calvin writes, It is therefore a fixed principle that God, who was formerly invisible, hath now made himself visible in Christ. Not only is it that God has made himself visible through Jesus Christ, but we understand God through Jesus Christ. The writer to the book of Hebrews tells us in Hebrews chapter 1, verses 1 through 3, God, after he spoke long ago to the fathers and the prophets in many portions and in many ways, in these last days has spoken to us in his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things, through whom he also made the world. And he is the radiance of his glory and the exact representation of his nature and upholds all things by the word of his power. When he had made the purification of sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. So Jesus Christ, being one member in the Trinity, knows the Father very, very intimately. Thus, if you want to know the Father, we must seek the Son. Jesus himself says in John 14, verse 7, If you had known me, you would have known my Father also. From now on, you know him and have seen him. How is it that they have known him and seen him? Because they have seen Christ. So we see in these closing verses of the prologue, a clear affirmation to the significance of Christ and the blessings obtained in him. Though following after John the Baptist from the standpoint of his physical birth and earthly ministry, Jesus Christ in his being and in his ministry is far more significant than John or any of the Old Testament prophets. He is God 
the only begotten God. Only through Christ can we behold the face of God without dying immediately. Only through Christ do we receive grace and truth. The law, as we read, was incapable of providing that for us. While it opened our eyes to see how sinful we are, and it showed us a way, if we were able to, to be declared righteous, it was incapable of actually producing that righteousness. It only revealed our corruption, our sinfulness. Though it was important for the law to be given through Moses, our justification was accomplished solely through Christ. In Christ, we receive grace upon grace, blessing upon blessing. Now, throughout the rest of this gospel, as we go through this, everything that John indicates in the prologue, we're going to be witnessing in the following chapters. We will see the numerous times that Jesus demonstrates his deity. We will see the numerous times where his light is shining in the darkness. We will see the numerous times where he showers believers with grace upon grace. We will even see times in which he gives life. Think of Lazarus. We will see many receive him as the promised Messiah, but we will also see many of his own reject him, even though they saw all of his wondrous works. So as we study the rest of the gospel, remember what was indicated here in the prologue. Jesus, the living word, is God. Jesus, the living word, is our light. Jesus, the living word, is life. Jesus, the living word, the only begotten God, is truth. Jesus, the living word, is the giver of grace upon grace. And Jesus, the living word, is our Savior. Let us now go to the Lord our God in prayer.